Amen, amen, amen. We usually uh, show our appreciation for the children's ministry workers, but they're already downstairs with our, our little ones having uh, led us in worship this morning. We're so thankful for them. Well, good morning again, church. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, we'd love for you to open it now to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts 2, 42 to 47. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, uh, we have been talking about the event of the day of Pentecost and uh, the explanation that Peter offers for that event. This week, we are turning a page and beginning to look at the result. When the Holy Spirit fell and when people were changed, they were not uh, immediately released back into Judaism. That wasn't the plan. Uh, the church is not a reform movement. It's the birth of a whole new thing. Uh, there's a reason that we refer to the day of Pentecost as the birthday of the church. That's what this is. The Holy Spirit didn't come to energize a cause. He came to enliven a community. And so here in Acts 2, 42 to 47, we get a snapshot of the church in its innocence and infancy. And it is intended as a sort of a plumb line. I don't know if that illustration still works. Uh, I don't know how many people today hang wallpaper. Um, the construction guys, are, uh, people will tell us, of course, that you use a plumb line for more than hanging wallpaper. I get that, but that's how I was introduced to it. Uh, a plumb line is just a weight on the bottom of a string. And, uh, and so you, you use it to make sure that your first strip of wallpaper is straight. Because your first strip of wallpaper is going to be the reference point for every subsequent uh, strip of wallpaper that you hang. And so if the first one is out of whack, then the whole room uh, is going to be disoriented. So that's what this is. This is the first strip, and it has been laid plumb. And it remains in the Bible so that it may serve as a reference and a guide for subsequent generations. And we'll consult it as such this morning. Now, we're going to do this in two parts. Uh, I started writing this as though we would cover it in one, and it just didn't allow us the opportunity to slow down and talk about what each of these things means. Uh, the whole reason for this series, we've called this series Church 2.0. And, uh, and the idea is that, you know, COVID was a, gave us a, a bit of a reset. I've said this many times, it's, it's hard, and I didn't invent this saying, I'm just repeating it. Uh, it's hard to do serious maintenance on an airplane in flight, right? Uh, you can vacuum up and down the aisles, uh, you can wipe down the, 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 the tray tops, but that's about it. If you want to swap out an engine or do any, you, you, the plane needs to be on the ground, and there's a sense in which I think the disruption of the last three years has served the church in that sense. Uh, we're getting to ask big questions, questions that it's hard to ask when you're just in the busyness of trying to make it happen. Because church is, it's like, a, it's like a subway train, right? Like every, you know, seven days, whoosh, uh, the whole thing just happens. And it's not just Sunday, it's everything that happens in the middle. And, and sometimes it's, it's just all you can do to, to keep the train running. And so... A pause is actually a good thing. So as I said, we called this series Church 2.0 so that we could say, all right, let's, let's recognize that the world has changed. A lot, a lot is different. Um, like this morning, people had, have forgotten what Connection Corner is. Now, that's not in the Bible. That's not important. Uh, but the point is, that's just an example of how much has not been done for the last couple of years. And so it gets us thinking about what is church really all about? What is the church? What should it be? What should it look like? And so this is arguably the most important passage in the Bible for facilitating that conversation. This is, a, this is in the Bible as a picture of 
the ideal church. Not the perfect church. I mean, if we get into the, some of the subsequent stories, Ananias and Sapphira, we're going to discover it's not a perfect church. But it is, this picture is in the Bible as a sort of plumb line. Uh, we're all supposed to look at this and be like, okay, all right. I mean, this is day one of the church. Right? In verse 41, 3,000 people get baptized. In verse 42, we got a description of what was going on. So, I mean, this is, fa- this is literally foundational stuff. And so I just thought it might be more helpful for us to deal with this over two weeks. So I've identified seven aspects. Maybe as you read this story, you see eight or nine or ten. I don't, I don't know. We can arm wrestle about that later. But uh, I, I've just identified what I think are seven aspects of this foundational depiction. And we'll look at the first four this Sunday. And then we'll come back and hit the rest next Sunday. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so as I mentioned, what we have here is a picture of a good church. This is the first strip of wallpaper. Uh, This is the foundational layer of the church. And we know that the church is built upon the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Christ as cornerstone. So the job for subsequent generations is to build up, build up on this pattern. And so, of course, the pattern is very important. And we're going to look at it as such. We're going to use this passage as a bit of a guide and a reference point. So we're talking about, we're trying to answer the question, what does a good church look like? Well, the first thing Luke says is the first thing that I would want to say as well. He says that a good church has a healthy appetite for apostolic teaching. You can see there uh, that right off the top in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, we remember, of course, that the apostles were the authorized interpreters of the person and work of Jesus. Jesus never wrote a book. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus never wrote a book. And if you're new to the Bible, that, maybe that's a surprise to you. Maybe you think, well, I, I assumed he wrote the, you know, the Gospels. No, he didn't. That's why they're called the Gospel of Matthew. Actually, that's a short form. If you want to be correct, it's the Gospel according to Matthew. Uh, and most of your Bibles will say that. They'll say according to, kata, uh, Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to John. So Jesus didn't write a, a Gospel, Rather, Jesus did all the events. That's how your Bible's put together. Jesus did the events. He lived the perfect life, right? So theologically speaking, we talk about how Jesus passed humanity's probation. So Jesus lived a perfect life. He kept the whole law of God. He treated others with perfect love. So Jesus did that. And then Jesus died a sacrificial death. He died upon the cross. He offered to God a payment that serves as a just payment for all the sins of God's people. So Jesus lived the life. 
He died the death. Then on the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He poured out his Holy Spirit. Jesus did all the acts. Jesus did the events. And then he authorized his apostles to provide the interpretation of those events, which, of course, leaves us with a pretty big question. How do we know that they got it right? How do we know that what they're telling us in the New Testament is actually what all this stuff means? How do we know they got it right? Well, for one thing, after his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days teaching them how to understand, how to, how to view everything that he did in his life, death, and resurrection, how to understand those events through the lens of the Old Testament. Luke told us about that in his gospel, Luke 24, 44 to 49. He said, this is Jesus speaking here, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, that's a Jewish way of referring to the whole Old Testament. So everything written about me in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So the first reason we can be confident that the apostles got it right is because Jesus spent 40 days with them making sure they got it right. Can you, I've often thought, boy, if I had all the, if, if, if God would grant me one wish, it would be that I could have been there for those 40 days. Like, can you imagine that? I mean, that's basically what I went to Bible school and university and seminary for seven years, and, and I bet you I didn't get 1% of that. Like, can you imagine spending 40 days with Jesus where he's like, all right, turn to Genesis 3, Genesis 3.15. Let me walk you through how that's me. All right, now turn to Genesis 12. Let me walk you through how that's me. I mean, can you just imagine that passage after passage? Isaiah 53, let me walk you through how that's me, right? Turn to Zechariah. We're, we're getting into that tonight in, in our Zechariah study. The last uh, part of, of Zechariah's vision is all about how these things ultimately land on the person and work of Christ. I've told you before, the last section of Zechariah is the most quoted portion of the prophets in the passion narratives of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine being with Jesus where he said, all right, open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. I'm walking you through this. Incredible. Jesus did that 40 days, a 40-day intensive course. And then on top of that, he gave them the Holy Spirit. He said, stay in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's going to help you understand this message. He's going to help you flesh it out. That's what Jesus did to ensure that the apostles are actually preaching the right gospel, preaching the gospel that Jesus wants them to preach. Now, you might say, well, that's... That sounds great, Pastor. And if only the apostles were still preaching, I'd come to church, right? You, you might say that, but if you said that, uh, you would be incorrect in saying that. That's not the right perspective. R.C. Sproul says helpfully here, today that apostolic doctrine is in the Scriptures. The early church was a Bible study in church, steadfastly, continually devoted to devouring the Word of God that came from the apostles. So all that teaching was written down. You know, I, I joke, well, I don't joke, I'm dead serious. I would have loved to have been there for those 40 days. But in a, in a sense, I don't need to have been because that's what the New Testament is. The New Testament is all the students in that class writing up their notes for you and for me for all time. That's what the New Testament is. It's the apostolic gospel 
written down. We have it now in the letters of Paul and Peter and John, James and Jude. We have their help to understand how all the threads of the Old Testament ultimately land and climax on the person and work of Jesus Christ. A good church is hungry for that. They want to see. They, they say, take me, take me to the Old Testament so that I can see it in its, in its you know, primitive, early, earliest, original form. I want, to, I want to grab hold of that thread for myself. I want to show me the priesthood stories. Help me understand, you know, we talked about that in Leviticus. We called it elementary. Take me to the very baseline of all this, of all this thought and theology. Now, let me trace it forward. Let me see its ups and downs. Now, let me understand how it lands on the person and work of Christ and how it continues now through the Holy Spirit in the church. Let me see that. Good church is hungry for that. They're not just picking and choosing little verses you can stick on a coffee mug to make you feel good on a sad day. They want the whole story. They're hungry for that. I will tell you this. When I was on sabbatical back in February, March, I had a number of my friends uh, preach here. And afterwards, of course, we would always talk about you behind your back on the phone. And multiple times, multiple times, I had friends say to me, Paul, your church is hungry for the word of God. They are good and eager listeners. I was very happy to hear that. It's not that I didn't know that, but I would argue that this is the first and foundational characteristic of a good church. All right, then secondly, a good church is a family, a tribe, and an identity. That's the second thing that Luke tells us. You can see that in the second bit of verse 42. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now, I think that most of us uh, hear that. We've got kind of an auto filter in our, in our ears. We hear that as though it's saying they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, meaning they just kind of hung out a lot. Um, they, they sat for a teaching time, and then they just kind of hung out. They ordered pizza, and they just chilled out. They spent a lot of time together. Well, that may be true, but that's not actually what it says. There's an article before the noun in the original Greek. So this is the fellowship, the koinonia. What does that mean? I went and looked that up just so I could make sure I was telling you the truth. Here's what it says. It says, close association involving mutual interests and sharing, association, communion, fellowship, close relationship. They were committed to that. See, because here's the funny thing. You can hang out a lot with other Christians and not actually be committed to that. You can actually hang out with, with other Christians and rip that to shreds. How many of you have have had that experience? You walk into a group of Christians hanging out, and they're actually ripping this to shreds. They're not at all committed to to this, right? So so the early church folks were not just hanging out. They were committed to the group. They were committed to the shared values. They were committed to the shared identity and the mutual purpose. They were us people, not them people. Do you know what I mean by that? I wish more modern-day evangelicals were us people because it seems that many now are them people. They say they love Jesus, but they've got problems with those people over there. they got problems with the church. Isn't that just about the most common thing for people to say now? Oh, I, I love Jesus, but, you know, I'm not a church person. I, I, you know, I've got problems with them. You understand them is us. You is us. You is them. Like, what are you talking about? Have I, have I missed something? I mean, I mean doesn't, doesn't it seem when you read the Bible, like if you believe, then you belong. If you love Jesus, then you love us. Isn't the Bible saying that, that you are us? Didn't Jesus say 
that the people gathered around him in faith and fellowship were, in fact, his family, his mother, his brother, his sister. Didn't Jesus say that? In Mark chapter 3, when his biological family, so this would be Mary, his brothers, his sisters, when they came to to get Jesus, to gather him up, because they heard people were out to get him, so they came to collect him and retreat back home. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, who are my mother and my brothers? That's a good way. If I ever asked that question, I'd lose my pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving, I'd tell you that, right? Who is Betty Carter to me anyway, right? I tell, I, Mom, I love you, pie, please, where I don't even know where you're sitting. But like, that's a pretty bold thing to say. Who, are, who, is, who is my mother exactly? Who are, who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. You hear that? Jesus says, I don't have to go with my family. I am already with my family. These people, the people gathered around me in faith and fellowship, they are my family. They are my mothers. They are my brothers. They are my sisters. Can I tell you something that'll rub you the wrong way? I'm sure that's why you came to church today, right? You're hoping, hoping I'd say something that would offend you. Here it is. We North Americans are steeped in the idolatry of biological family. We prioritize our biological families so highly that it is often impossible for them and for us to properly integrate and identify with the body of Christ. Now listen, the Bible is clear that biological family matters. It's not as though you become a Christian and then all of a sudden you don't have a biological family. In 1 Timothy 5, the Apostle Paul says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So biological family still matters, but it is not ultimate. It is not primary. As soon as you become a Christian, the family of Jesus is primary. And can I tell you something? Christians don't need to be taught this in any culture where they're being persecuted. They only need to be taught it in places where it's easy to believe. We need to be taught it. It, The church has to be real. It has to be family. It has to be ultimate. It has to be primary for the safety of those coming in, for the benefit of those coming in, and for the benefit of us as well. As soon as you become a Christian, the family of Jesus is primary. And listen to this. Who you are toward them is who you are toward Jesus. That's the punchline of the story of the sheep and the goats. Remember that? People were surprised to discover why it was that they were counted as worthy to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Do you see that? Who you are toward the family of Jesus is who you are toward Jesus. I don't know how Jesus could make that any clearer than he did in this story. He's asking Are you a friend to the family of Jesus or a foe? Are you a brother or an opposer? To the evangelicals in North America, I wonder if he would ask, are you in or are you indifferent? Because who you are to us is who you are to him. 
Jesus said that. Whoever receives you receives me. I wonder if there's 10 people in this room who actually believe that. Now you say, well, pastor, I'm obligated to believe it because it's in the Bible. I know, but is it part of your heart Bible? Like, is it part of the stuff that's actually infiltrated your brain and affected your worldview? Jesus is saying, there is no me without us. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. See, there's a line. Father sent me, I sent them, you reject them, I reject you, Father rejects you, that's how it goes. Whoever receives you receives me, whoever receives me receives him who sent me, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Anything you do towards a little one because that little one belongs to Jesus goes on your record as having been done directly to Jesus. Would you like to do something nice for Jesus today? Do something nice for the least of these, a little one among his disciples, and you will by no means lose your reward. The followers of Jesus are the family of Jesus, and a good church understands that. A good church is filled with us people, not them people. It is filled with the brothers, sisters, and mothers of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Third thing we can say here is that a good church is devoted to the ordinances and to prayer. Now, I thought about putting this down as a good church is committed to the Lord's Supper and to prayer, because that's actually what we see at verse 42 there. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and then in the second bit, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And breaking of bread is an early term for communion. Tyndale New Testament commentary says here, this is Luke's term for what the Apostle Paul calls the Lord's Supper. So I thought about just saying a good church is committed to communion or, or to the Lord's Supper and to prayer. But then look at the verse that comes right before that. Look at verse 41. Verse 41 says, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So I think what Luke is trying to do here is just give us a snapshot of what's going on inside the house. Inside the house, the family is gathered around the table, right? They're eating at the table. They're praying at the table. This, that's a nice shot. But of course, every house has a front door, and baptism is the front door. Now, is the door part of the inside or the outside of the, of the house? You know, obviously, there's a bit of both and there, so I'm including it here. And it's totally legitimate to include it here. All you got to do is zoom out one verse. They were baptized. It's the people who were baptized who were then are sitting at the table. In fact, it's interesting. The commentaries that I studied, they, they split, meaning some of the commentaries treat verses 41 to 47 as the unit called the response, like what, what happened after or the result, what happened after Peter preached his great sermon. People were baptized. They started listening to the apostles' teaching. They were, so some started at 41, some started at 42. Either way, I think it's perfectly legit to zoom out and put it in here. That's why I've got it as a good church is committed to the ordinances and to prayer. Now, maybe you come from a tradition where it's more uh, common to refer to the ordinances as sacraments. Uh, when you think of baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's fine, too. Baptists tend to prefer uh, to use the term ordinance because it reminds us that these are not optional things. These are things that Jesus actually ordered us to do. Jesus told us to baptize. He said, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's not optional. That's a command of Jesus. That's an ordinance, we didn't do a baptism last Sunday because we thought it would be cool and it would be good for church morale. We did it because Jesus ordered us to do it. 
And we don't do communion because we know that some people are just visual learners. We did it because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. That's not a suggestion. That's an order. So in a good church, we take those commands, those ordinances seriously. We baptize. We don't just let people ease their way in. Have you ever thought about that? Because if, if, if a church marketing strategist designed the church, baptism would go, right? Because it's, it's better to just let people ease in. That's less intimidating. Some of you were terrorized because we asked you to say hi to somebody this morning. Can you imagine if we asked you to stand in the waters and like say before everybody, I am following Jesus, dying to my old life and rising again to the new life. Please hold me accountable, which is exactly what you are saying in communion. No church marketer would design that, right? That's a bit of a disaster. But that's exactly what we're called to do. Jesus, here's, a, here's a thought for you. Jesus did not command us to ask people to pray a little prayer and raise their hands in, their, in the air while everyone's eyes are closed. He commanded us to call on people to pass through the waters. Now, there's some good psychology behind that. Have you ever had a feeling that you felt really strong about, but then five minutes later it passed? Yeah, me too. That's what feelings are. But stepping into the waters, being asked a clear question, being required to give a clear answer, being forced to face your fears, being held accountable by a crowd of witnesses, man, that's a whole other thing. And that is the thing that Jesus commanded us to do. Now listen, I'm not opposed to hands in the air. Many bodies in the water began as hands in the air. I'm just saying, bodies in the water is what Jesus commanded us to do. So in a good church, they're going to take that seriously. In a good church, baptism is not something that everybody's confused about. Baptism is is not something that is treated as an optional add-on. It is the thing. It is the essential declaration of faith. And in a good church, they're committed to the Lord's Supper. They fence the table. That's a phrase you hear me use every once in a while. This morning, you get to find out what it means, right? To, to fence the table simply means we, we insist that people come in through the front door to go back to our house analogy. You want to join the family at the table? Then come in through the front door. They make it clear that this is not just a religious experience that you can sample. This is not a perpetually open buffet table. You cannot reach your arm through the window and grab a croissant on your way by. This is a family meal. It is for baptized followers of Jesus Christ. Now listen, I don't care whether you got baptized here or at some other church. We're not closed communion in that sense. And I don't, and I don't care, hear me carefully, I don't care about the volume of water used in your baptism when it comes to communion. I, now I have my beliefs, and we as a church have our settled practices but I do care about whether or not you come in through the front door. And so we always say that this table is for followers of Jesus Christ. It is a memorial and a means of grace. It is a memorial in the sense that it always reminds us of our holy center. It always reminds us of ground zero, which is, of course, the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it is a memorial. It's a memorial and. It's not a mere memorial. It is a memorial and a means of grace, which means that if you partake of it in faith, that's the key term, 
if you partake of it in faith. It's not magic. If you grab up some of the bread and run out into the parking lot and gobble it up thinking you've gamed us, no, you have not. But if you partake of it in faith, then God meets you there. He encourages you. He strengthens you. He does business in your heart in a a special way, in a real way. Now, can I explain that? No, I cannot explain that. But I know it's true. And in a good church, the people know it's true. And they take it seriously. They prepare for it. They search their hearts. They remove offense. They settle differences and extend mercy in order to be ready. And they're committed to prayers, to the prayers, literally. Says, seems like in the early days of the church, uh, they did their prayer times in the temple at the set hours of prayer. In fact, if you have already read Acts numerous times, you know the very next story in the Bible, the story you can probably guess we're going to be talking about very soon, is a story that takes place while Peter and John are on their way to the temple for the hours of prayer. Now, there's obviously some necessity behind this. Um, the church didn't have a building that could comfortably seat. 3,000 people, so they had to make use of whatever space was available. So they did their their prayer meetings uh, in the temple. And of course, this wouldn't have been available to all Christians. That, That option wouldn't have been available to Christians in Antioch or Rome. And of course, it wasn't available to any Christians after AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. But there's a principle here. The principle is that the church gathered at set times for prayer. They were committed to fulfilling their priestly function, which is to say, they understand, what's a priest? A priest is somebody who stands before God and the people. Well, according to the New Testament now, we're all priests. We're a kingdom of priests, and prayer is the activity of the priesthood. Prayer is when we reach up to heaven to bring down mercies and blessings that are needed for our friends, neighbors, and loved ones down here on earth. And a good church, they're doing that. They're committed to the ordinances and to prayer. And then fourthly, and lastly for today, we see here in this picture that a good church experiences the presence and help of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 43. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, remember, Luke's goal here is to give us a snapshot of a healthy church. He's providing us with a set of principles and a general standard. And I think the principle is that in a good church, they can expect to experience the presence and the help of the Holy Spirit, though that may look slightly different in every generation. I think it will. Listen, there is something special and unique, something absolutely spectacular about the work of the Holy Spirit in the first generation of the church. Later in the book of Acts, we're going to be told that people were trying to get Peter's shadow to fall on them so that they could be healed. Peter's Peter's shadow had its own healing ministry. Isn't that incredible? And, and it, it, it worked. That's Acts 5.15. And then later we're going to be told that people were taking the Apostle Paul's handkerchief and using it to heal people. I've always wondered, like, how that worked. Did, did he have it inside his coat pocket and people just, you know, go in for the Christian hug before church and take the handkerchief and they go and they rub it on sick nanny at home? I have no idea how that was happening, but apparently it was happening and people were getting healed by the hanky, right? That's Acts 19.12. That's incredible, That's incredible. Now listen, let me ask you a serious question. Are we a bad church because no one is hoisting James Hauser up on a crane so that wherever his shadow falls in the city of Aurelia, people will be miraculously healed? Are we a bad church? Do we lack faith? 
Are we a bad church because no one's taken Brent Thomas's hanky out of his breast pocket and taken it down to Aurelia Soldier's Memorial Hospital to rub on all the people with cancer? Are we a bad church because we're not doing that? And that sounds like a super spreader event to me. Are we a bad church? Do we lack faith? Is that stuff supposed to be happening right now in this generation of the church? Or was that something special? I think it was something special. And so did the author of the book of Hebrews. Speaking about the gospel that he and the apostles were entrusted with, he said, it was declared at first by the Lord, that's Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So according to Hebrews, God gave special signs and affirmations to make it clear to everybody that the gospel that was being preached by the apostles was in fact the gospel as Jesus intended it to be preached. They were like road flares lighting up the way of salvation. That's what the Holy Spirit was doing in the first generation of the church. So I don't expect that. I don't think we require that exactly in this generation. But I do expect the Holy Spirit to be doing signs in the heavens above and wonders on the earth beneath. I expect great acts of political and personal providence to optimize the conditions for conversion for men and women in the here and now. We talked about that last week. So yes, I pray, I'll tell you this. I pray for people to be healed. Maybe this is a window into my heart. Maybe you can rebuke me after the service. But I always pray with way more faith for people to be healed when I'm praying for people I intend to share the gospel with or I'm in the process of sharing the gospel with. I'm not saying that it's never God's will to, to heal Christians. The Apostle Paul says, you know, he prayed three times to have his thorn in the flesh removed and then he just felt a stirring in his spirit to stop praying. I don't know, what's the rule? Do you pray three times for a Christian to be healed and then you stop? I I don't know. I'm not gonna get overly legalistic on that. I'm just saying we do know that sometimes actually God wills for us, sometimes in the providence of God, it's good for us to suffer a little bit, right? You don't have to be, have been to seminary to know that. They say that in the Psalms. David says in Psalm 119 twice, it was good for me that I was afflicted. It was good for me that I was afflicted. Taught me to read the Bible better. Right? Taught me, to walk, taught me to walk with God closer. So we know that. 2 Corinthians 1 says, actually, sometimes we suffer so that we can call down, so we get strong at calling down gospel grace into suffering so that we can then activate and use that ability to help other people who are suffering. Let me, let me just say honestly, this church would not be very useful to this community if there weren't some folks in it who had suffered. But I'll tell you, so I say all that to say, when, I'm, when somebody comes to me and says, you know, Pray for me, I got a wonky this or wonky that. I pray, and I'm praying with faith, but I'm also praying, Lord, your will be done. I don't want to be praying against what you're doing here, which is okay. If Jesus prayed that, you can pray that. That's not lacking a faith. But I pray with great faith when somebody from the community comes to me and says, Pat, you're a Christian, right? Yes. Listen, I got a thing. Could you pray for me? And I'm like, oh, God, you're doing a thing, right? Work of providence. I pray with unfettered, absolute focused confidence in a situation like that. Not that I can tell God what to do, but I'm just saying, I believe in that. I believe that God goes before us, that the Holy Spirit goes before us to do acts of personal providence in lives as an aid to our sharing of the gospel. I believe in that. I believe in a good church, you're gonna experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. Do you ever just sense that the Lord is with us? You're gonna experience the presence of the Holy Spirit and the help of the Holy Spirit. I believe that. We experienced a bit of that presence and help last Sunday, didn't we? Friends, can I tell you something? 
Anytime, anytime you're seeing a young adult in church today, you are witnessing a miracle of the Holy Spirit. You say amen to that? Last Sunday, a fellow got baptized here, and I was embarrassed because I didn't know his name. I thought, as he went by, I thought, I don't know who that is. And I, thought, I was embarrassed. I thought, I'm a bad pastor. That's somebody's kid who's grown up, and, and I, I just I have lost track of them, and I didn't recognize them, and I was embarrassed. So after the service, I went up to them, and I said, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't know your name. I'm sorry about that. And he said, oh, no problem, pastor. It's my first Sunday at the church. I'm a student from Lakehead, and I just felt the call of the Lord to respond today. Brothers and sisters, there's your miracle right there, Right? When university students in this God-hating culture are being led to come to church, brought to church by friends, and being helped to hear the gospel and being led by the hand through the waters of baptism in front of 400 people they've never seen before, there's all the evidence you need that the Lord is alive and at work among us. And that's going to happen in the church. That's going to happen in a healthy church. Thanks be to God. Now, as I said, we're going to come back and finish uh, this list next Sunday. But I, I didn't want to move so fast that we didn't have time to do any evaluation and reflection. So don't close your Bible. People are like, oh, pastor's winding it down. No, I'm not. I've got something left for you. I hear pages rustle. Pastors listen for wrestling pages. Remember, this, this picture's in your Bible to function as a plumb line. Is there's a reference point. We're supposed to test ourselves, assess ourselves against its trueness and straightness. So how are we doing? More specifically, how are you doing? Because you are us. We are you. This house is made up of living stones, individual stones. Peter says that in 1 Peter 2.4. So how does your life and your attitude toward church line up with this depiction that's what I'm asking. How's your appetite for God's word? Do you, do you start getting fidgety 15 minutes into the sermon? Do you start fantasizing about the afternoon's football game? Well, that struck close to home. Somebody right now is putting in their sports bet right now. I know it. Under conviction. Well, listen, if, if, if that's you then maybe you you have some work to do. Maybe you need to join a small group. Maybe you need to exercise your attention span. And how are you doing with the fellowship? Do you think of this church as your family? Here's an even better question. Do your kids think of this church as their family? Why or why not? Are you too busy for your kids to think of us as their family? Listen, I want to be clear. I think it's great that, you know, Johnny is playing uh, football, baseball, hockey, soccer. I, I think that's great. I think it's good for kids to be healthy and active. I don't think it's God's will for anybody to live in the basement eating derivatives and playing Call of Duty all day long. So let's go. Let's get Susie and Johnny active. Let's get them connected. I, I think that's fantastic. But if they're so active in these activities that they can never come to youth group or they can never come to church, then are they ever going to feel like this is home? Are they ever going to feel like we are their family? Will this ever be their identity? Will they ever wake up in the morning and think of themselves as the sons and daughters of God, the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ? 
And if not, then you need to make some changes. And how are you doing with the ordinances? You know, I wonder if there's anybody in here who was actually supposed to get baptized last Sunday. But when the Holy Spirit knocked, you pretended like nobody was home. Don't do that. Don't do that because next time he may not knock. And then maybe you'll be on the outside looking in for all eternity. Or what about communion? Are you taking the time to prepare? Are you doing what you need to do to be ready? Communion is next week. It's a good time to be thinking about that. You know, I'll say this. The Lord has blessed me with a very sensitive conscience. And I don't say that to say, oh, pastor's saying he's a good person. Actually, I think it's the opposite. I think the Lord knew I'm such a bad person, he must give me a very sensitive conscience. I imagine the better person you are, the less of a conscience you need. I don't know if they come in sizes or strengths. I'm just saying, in the providence of God, the Lord gave me a very, very sensitive conscience. And I can't be at peace if I feel like I am even a percentage of blame in a wrong interaction with you. And some of you know that because I apologize a lot. Uh, And again, partly it's because of my personality. I'm an extrovert, so I say stuff and I make jokes. And then about three hours later, I realized, hey, that was unkind. Plus, I grew up with siblings. And so, you know, if you're not bleeding after a family dinner, you weren't trying. Uh, I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm and, you know, encouragement, right? You got it. (laughs) So I've apologized to probably 40 people in this room. But so the Lord gave me a very sensitive, and, and I'll just say, in the last 24 hours, I've, I, I've had to, you know, go and make it right with somebody because I just felt like I, I, can't, I can't live a day without the help of the Holy Spirit. And so if, if I've offended the Holy Spirit by speaking ill or speaking wrong to another child of God, I can't do it. Like maybe you can do it. Maybe you can go three days without the Holy Spirit. I can't go an hour because I'm that bad of a person. And, and so I had to wrestle with that, and I had to go and make good. And it was tough because I thought, in this situation, I'm only like 30% to blame. Do you ever do that? You figure out ratio of blame, so you can figure out who should initiate reconciliation. And in this case, I'm like, I'm 30%. This other person's 70. Maybe, I'll be honest, it could be 75, 25. I'm being generous. And so I'm like, they should come to me, but I don't know how long that's going to take. Maybe their conscience is smaller than mine. Maybe it's going to take six weeks. I had somebody come to me once at this church and tell me that they've been angry at me for years. And first of all, I'd never even noticed. But I was like, how can you wait years uh, to come and say, I can wait 10 minutes. But you got to go and make it ready. And and I'll be honest with you, that is the magic of communion. Uh, My wife, by the way, just so you're not thinking here, it it was not Shana Lee, it was not my wife. So you're not all awkward on my behalf. But... I have had to slip my wife a note just prior to communion because the Holy Spirit drops something on me. It's like, ooh, that thing you said this morning, not cool. You're like, ah, right? I have written a note uh, as the elements are passed, uh, or maybe it was just before the elements were passed. I think it was in the song of preparation, which is killer for me, right? But it should be. You know, we had a conversation a couple years ago, I think it was about eight years ago, uh, around the board table where we asked the question, we really wrestled with, should we do communion every week? The Bible doesn't uh, specify whether you do it once a week, once a month, or four times a year. And there are good evangelical churches that do all of those things. Four times a year, once a month. We're in the middle, right? We had a conversation about should we do it every week? And there's pros and cons. I think I spoke to both sides, which was probably not helpful. But I, I said, here's what I like about the idea of doing it every week. I love the idea that no matter where I go in the sermon, 
If you do communion at the end, you land on the essence, the core of the gospel. I love that. Because there's a lot of stuff in the Bible. You could, and it's legit to preach on anything in the Bible. But isn't it wonderful to land in the center? Isn't it wonderful to land on the, just the, the ground zero of the gospel? So that's what I liked about it. But then, I said, but, you know, then we talked, and, what, and what the guys and I, I agreed, what I don't like about doing it every week is that, in essence, it rushes you to the point where maybe you don't have the opportunity to take it serious. Maybe there's somebody in the church that you need to reconcile with, and that's going to take more than a couple days. Maybe it's going to take four or five meetings. Maybe those are going to take some time to set up. And so we thought, you know, the, the, the worry is if we make it every week, people aren't going to have the time to take it serious. So we landed on once a month. But I'm just saying this. I hope you know that, and I hope you're taking advantage of that time to do what you're supposed to do. Because the best definition I can think of for quenching the Spirit is when the Spirit knocks, you don't answer. So if the Spirit says to you, like I just said a minute ago, communion is next Sunday. I'm guessing 50 people just got a Spirit tweak. The Spirit said, yeah, communion is next week. Don't come without dealing with that thing. Did you, don't put your hand up, but did you have that? I, in a room of this size, if the Holy Spirit is active, guaranteed 50 people got that. Deal with it. And don't just take communion next week saying, yeah, I'll get to it. That, in my mind, would be the best way to quench the Holy Spirit in your life. The, the best way to keep the Holy Spirit talking to you is to respond every time he talks to you. Do it within the hour. Right? I would say you, the smartest thing you could do today is take this as your take-home point. Communion is coming next Sunday. Make a phone call, send a text, send an email today to set something up so that you can be ready next week. What about What about prayer? It was interesting, in the preaching workshop, the guy said, are you going to ask us to evaluate ourselves as a church or individually? I said, I think it's more valuable to do it individually. Because as a church, I could say, well, I'm going to give us an A on, you know, hungry for the, for the apostolic word. But if you're sitting here and you haven't read your Bible in three years, then maybe that would be false confidence for you. So I think it's more important to talk about us individually as our individual stones. But as a church, one area I can safely say, I don't, I don't think we're we're doing all we can and should, is in the area of prayer. Now, we often feel good about ourselves as a church of prayer because we measure ourselves against other churches. That's not the standard, though. We're not supposed to measure ourselves against other churches. We're supposed to measure ourselves against this church. This church, it sounds like 3,000 people, 3, people got baptized and 3,000 people were involved in the prayers. In our church, we think we're doing great because we get about 500 on a Sunday and then about 50 people during the week come out for our various prayer groups. That's pretty good relative to other churches in town, which is apropos to nothing. That's 10%. This is 100%, which means there's 90% room for growth, right? So we've got all kinds of prayer groups. We've got groups that meet in the morning. My group meets at 7 a.m. on Thursday. So if you're one of those weird people like me that uh, prefers early morning to late at night, then we got this. We got, we got night groups. We've got afternoon groups. How you doing there? How you doing? Are you committed to the process of being a priest? Reaching up into heaven for blessings to share here on earth. What about the Holy Spirit? Are you experiencing his presence? I suppose the answer to that depends on the answer to the previous two, doesn't it? But are you praying for divine appointments? I don't want to embarrass Pastor Bill, but one of the things that was really great about having Pastor Bill on staff and, and before he retired was he'd often share wonderful stories about evangelism that happened in nursing homes. His practice was to pray before he went through the door. Lord, I don't know who I'm seeing this person, but if you've got this person for me to see, and he'd pray for a divine appointment. Almost every time there was a divine appointment. I wonder how many evangelistic opportunities we miss out on because we don't do that. 
Maybe that's something you need to do this week. I don't know. How are you doing with all that? Lot to think about. How does your stone sit against the standard of this picture? Have you got some business to do? Yeah, me too. Oh, God, help. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we, we stand underneath the scrutiny of your word. Lord, I imagine that, that passage hits everyone in this room a little differently. I know where it hit me. Lord, I pray that with the help of your Holy Spirit, we would respond as we should. Lord, I pray that no one here would, would be callous before the Holy Spirit and turn a deaf ear to what the prompting is for them. I pray rather that they would deal with it quickly and deal with it appropriately, and they would do so with the help that you provide. We give you all the glory and all the thanks in Jesus' name.